From the University of Chicago, this is Big Brains with Paul M. Rand. Conversations with pioneering thinkers that will change the way you see the world. Cosmologist Wendy Friedman has spent her career measuring the age of the universe. She's also led an international effort to build the world's largest telescope. The Giant Magellan Telescope is going to be as tall as the Statue of Liberty and 10 times more powerful than the Hubble Space Telescope itself. When it's finished, we'll be able to glimpse back to the birth of the galaxy and might even be able to find signs of life outside of our solar system. Wendy talked with me about her revolutionary work and why she thinks one of the greatest discoveries in the universe might be just around the corner. Well, let me ask you, you have become really quite recognized on, on a worldwide level for an, an area, observational cosmology. What in the world is observational cosmology? Well, cosmology to begin with is a study of the, the universe, the, the grandest of all sciences in some sense. Uh, we ask questions about the origin of the universe, the evolution of the universe, the structure of the universe. What What is the universe? What makes it tick? How does it evolve with time? And we can ask questions about the, the nature of the universe, both by applying physical laws that we know apply on Earth, gravity, we're all familiar with the force of gravity, and we know about Newton's laws of gravity, we may know about Einstein's theory of gravity, its theory of general relativity, and those make predictions for what we should see. And we now have tremendous telescopes that we can point at the sky and we can look out at the universe and ask, what do we see? Does it match the predictions? And so an observational cosmologist uses large telescopes. I traveled to Chile, the Andes Mountains, Hawaii, various places around the world where there are remote sites, dark sites, and also make use of telescopes in space like the Hubble Space Telescope. So we can ask questions, direct questions. What is the universe doing? How far away are galaxies? How fast is the universe expanding? And do those match the predictions? And the thing that, that when people think of you and what you're focused on, it's typically around something called the Hubble constant. And, and, and I wonder if, it, if you can explain that a little bit. So the Hubble constant is a quantity that measures the current rate at which the universe is expanding. So it's named after Edwin Hubble. And there, there's a little bit of history with him on this campus. Is that right? There is indeed. He began his career at the University what of Chicago. What do you Chicago. know? So the Hubble constant is a measure. Now, so what Hubble discovered is that the universe is expanding. He made measurements of the distances to galaxies and using measurements of velocities, the, the rate at which galaxies are moving away from us. So it was a discovery that he made that the velocity of a galaxy is related to how far away the galaxy is. Okay. So before Hubble, we didn't know whether there were other galaxies in addition to our own Milky Way galaxy or whether uh, the regions that he was studying were part of our own Milky Way where new stars were forming. And he unambiguously established that there are other galaxies and that those galaxies are undergoing an overall expansion. Most galaxies we look at, by far, almost all the galaxies we see are moving away from us. And when you think about a galaxy in some ways being infinite, then how does it expand? The, the, obviously, they're not infinite. So it, the, the idea at the time that Hubble began his 
study of the universe, the idea was that we lived in a universe that was static, wasn't moving. And if you asked astronomers during that time, is there any evidence for the universe being in motion? There was no evidence. But what Hubble found was that, in fact, uh, galaxies all appear to be moving away from us. And that, together with the general theory of relativity that Albert Einstein had developed in 1915, 1917, led to a picture, okay, if the universe is now expanding and we look out and we see galaxies moving away from us, then you could extrapolate backwards, in effect, like running a movie in reverse, and you realize that, okay, galaxies are a certain distance now, but in the past, they would have been closer to us. And there would have been a time, in fact, you go far enough back in, in the past, where the universe would have been very dense and very hot. And that's what led to this picture of what we now call the Big Bang. Big Bang, okay. And- uh, it was by understanding that. that by led- understanding that. So it, okay. it's a, an interplay between theory, the theory of general relativity, and observations on these very large scales that we can get a picture of what is the universe like. And and for the first time, we realize it's changing. It's evolving. There was a, a time in the universe we had this tremendous explosion, and the universe has been expanding. But the Big Bang since. theory was began to be understood by the understanding of the Hubble constant. Yes. And so it's the measurement of the Hubble constant, uh, which is a relationship between how fast a galaxy is moving and how far away it is. And that was what Edwin Hubble did. Now, the time he made his measurements, he didn't have the technical capability to do it very accurately. He did the best that he could. Uh, And it really, until the time of the Hubble Space Telescope, the launch of a telescope above the Earth's atmosphere, and that's when I came into the field. I feel very lucky to have come in at a time where we could make these measurements extremely accurately. And so Hubble, so the Hubble constant gives you a measure of both the age of the universe and its size. So if we can measure that accurately, then we can actually date the when the Big Bang happened. And when I uh, began my studies, there was a debate in our field about what the age of the universe was. We did not know it better than a factor of two. So the universe was either 10 billion years old or 20 billion years old. And that's a big discrepancy. That's a big, yep, very right. wide range. We, we, and and so uh, th- that was another case, in fact, where <laughs> so the, the two directors at the observatory that I worked at uh, who tried to discourage me from working on the problem because there were indications from some people that the age was very old. We knew that, and so why why measure it? And that's one of the beauties of science is that we don't know what the answer is. We don't have a textbook where we can turn to the back where the answer is to the problem is and say, okay, now we know. We really do have to measure it. And that's what's so exciting about the field is we have the opportunity to do that. It grabbed something in the human imagination whenever whoever told the first story told it. Yet this is what writing is, a leaving behind. I love the seminary go up. Let me say how happy I am to be here among my people in the temple of the book. Insightful, observant, and recorded live at Chicago's world-renowned Seminary Co-op bookstores, OpenStax brings you conversations with scholars, poets, activists, and more on subjects as eclectic as the books on our shelves. 
plus the latest in scholarly publishing and books of endurance with views from the co-op's venerable front table. Join the conversation at semcoop.com or wherever you download podcasts. Open stacks. Stay tuned. Stay curious. And so one of the next big iterations, the discoveries, is likely going to be coming out of the next projects that you're working on called the Giant Magellan Telescope. That's right. So the Giant Magellan Telescope is a new telescope that we are, uh, in fact, in the process. It's under construction in the Andes Mountains in Chile. And it's on the desert. Is that right in Chile? It's high in the mountains, but in the desert. Uh, yeah, it will be located in the Andes Mountains, the Atacama Desert in, in uh, northern Chile. And uh, we go to remote sites because it's, first of all, dark away from city lights, but also uh, it's in the desert, which means it doesn't rain very much. And mm. if you want to look at the night sky, <laughs> you want your telescope dome to be open. And so that's why we go to these high mountain uh, deserts. And it will be the largest telescope of its kind in the world when it's completed. And and just in terms of the size of the actual telescope, I, I've heard as large as the Statue of Liberty. Is is that an exaggeration? That's no exaggeration. The the uh, telescope, uh, if you want to compare it in scale, is comparable to the the height of the Statue of Liberty. This is a mammoth. Uh, facility. And uh, it will be 80 feet in diameter. And it will be made up of seven independent mirrors, each one of which is about 27 feet in diameter. These mirrors are interesting in their own right. I could go on about the mirrors and, and how we make them. Uh, they're actually made in a rotating oven. It's like a cauldron. We huh. melt the glass uh, as the oven is spinning. So each one of these mirrors is 27 feet in diameter. And uh, as the oven heats up in temperature, the glass is melting, we make the original parabolic shape that we want the mirror to have. So it's like if you spin a bucket that has water in it, you get the force, centrifugal force, pushes up the glass to the side and you get the original shape you want. And then we use a computer-controlled lap to polish the mirrors. And these Mirrors now have been polished to one millionth of an inch, by which I mean the bumps on the surface are smaller, the range of the size of the bumps, than a millionth of an inch. So you can imagine this gargantuan uh, structure that has to be balanced to incredible precision so that we can make these uh, measurements, which will have 10 times the clarity that we can achieve in space with the Hubble Ten space times. Ten so times. So I thought somewhere you talked about this. Right now you look at it, it looks like a smudge. Mm-hmm. And then going forward, it's not going to, what's it going to look like? Well, it will bring immediately into focus uh, what is happening in the distant objects okay. in the universe where we're trying to understand how are the first galaxies in the universe forming, for example. And when we take images now with the Hubble Space Telescope and we we point at the same region of the sky for weeks or months, add up the signal, integrate it so we can see very faint objects – they look like smudges. That's what I was referring to. And 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 then with this telescope, we'll actually see detail. Are, what are these galaxies like? How did they form? When did they form? And uh, we can ask questions like, uh, are there other planets that have masses comparable to Earth? And right now, our technology allows us to say a lot about planets that are like Neptune or Uranus or the heavy planets like Jupiter and Saturn, but we don't have a telescope yet that has enough 
sensitivity or resolution, clarity, to to actually make measurements of planets with the masses of, of the Earth. So it, in our field, the new developments have come with new technology, without exception, from the time that Galileo first turned a telescope to the sky in right. 1609. Every time we've built a new capability, we've made new discoveries, which is why we're so excited. Uh, and, and so what role does the University of Chicago play University of Chicago is one of the early founding partners of the Giant Magellan Telescope, which is one of the things that really excites me uh, being here now at the University of Chicago. And uh, it plays a role in both the development of the scientific case for the telescope. There are people uh, on the faculty who are very interested in development of instrumentation on the back end of the telescope. And it's played a huge role in the leadership of the telescope. The Giant Magellan Telescope you think will be functional in 2022? 2024. 2024. Uh, when we will have first light for the telescope, assuming everything stays on the current schedule. So we've now uh, cast the mirror for the, the fifth mirror for the telescope, and it requires seven in, uh, ultimately. But we will go ahead with the first four mirrors. So you can, you can it's operational. It's oh, not yet. You have to have all seven. You have to have a, a mount, a steel mount, okay. where you place these mirrors and you can point your telescope to any region of the sky. You have okay. to have an in instrument at the back so you can collect the light that's coming to us from the distant universe. And and so that uh, none of these things can you buy off the shelf, right? right. <laughs> They're all being done piece by piece by uh, a very talented group of engineers around the world. So it's it's under construction. Okay. So you're going down. You told me two or three times a year, you check in on things. I'm sure it's quite remarkable. Oh, it is remarkable to watch this telescope uh, being built from the ground up. And it's we started the project in uh, 2003. So for 12 years, I led the, the project, put together the partnership to build the telescope. So I really have watched it from the beginning. And now actually seeing the pieces of hardware come together and uh, there's now a little city on the top of the mountain. There'll be 250 oh, people working there under peak construction when the, when the telescope is actually the mount and the enclosure. It's like a, it's not like it is a 22-story building, but it has to rotate because you want your telescope to be able to look out at any region of the sky. So this is a complex piece of machinery. The vast majority of the folks I worked with in the jail needed something else than incarceration. How can we ask parents or caregivers to do the hard work of taking care of a sick child, which is the scariest thing in the world, while starving? Then you really have a way of having science and policy come together in a way that really speaks to the magic of cities. From the University of Chicago, this is Knowledge Applied, a new podcast where we'll go inside the research, reshaping everyday life. In our first season, meet the experts who are digging into some of the toughest questions facing cities today. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So in your wildest dreams, you're thinking, my goodness, what we could possibly achieve with this next development could be X, Y, or Z. What What do you think of? What do you dream of as you start thinking about that? Uh, I think if we actually were able to detect Earth mass planets, establish that they truly had the mass of the Earth, and then we could take a spectrum, divide the light into a rainbow, and look for features that would uh, represent water, 
carbon dioxide, methane, ozone, the kinds of signatures that, that would be telltale signs of life. If we really were able to, to show that there's life on a planet outside of our own solar system, that will be one of the discoveries that I think not only will be exciting for astronomers, but will change our perspective, humankind's perspective on, on our place in the universe. So I think that would be a monumental discovery. So you think that's, that's going to happen? That's something in principle that, that GMT could do. And we don't know what kind of life, but we're now, we're at the, so I think that's what's so exciting right now is we're living at a time where you can actually ask these questions. They're not science fiction right, right now. We really can't ask. People have speculated about these things for millennia. You know, is there life elsewhere in the universe? Are there other planets? Now we know there are other planets. Are there other galaxies? There, we know there are other galaxies. We know the universe is expanding. And it's just a tremendous time to be Does the alive, prospect <laughs> of, of that excite you, scare you, something in between? It excites it's me. Excites There's no you. question. Yeah, I, I, it's, I, I think it's one of the most exciting things that we, as, as a human species, have done. It's, it's a journey, and I think it's, it's exciting, and it's as beautiful as art or music or literature. All, all the things that we do as a human species, and the fact that we can ask these questions and then, and make measurements and test our ideas. If they're wrong, they're wrong. And, and we can do that. It's, right. it's extraordinarily exciting, I, th I think. There's a great amount of awe that goes into what you're doing. As you're thinking or seeing or learning something that's just completely awestruck you. There are so many things that have developed just since the time that I entered the field. And I think, uh, none of us really could have imagined. One is the the possibility of making measurements that, so, you know, for example, things that uh, Einstein had predicted would happen, but he actually discarded as, because they were so small, as a possibility that they would ever be measured. And one good example, I think, of what's happened in our field is the ability to make measurements of tiny, tiny, tiny differences in the background radiation, which is a remnant from the Big Bang. Mm. So if there was a Big Bang, another one of these testable ideas, we should see the remnants of that today. It's a tremendous explosion. What happened to all the radiation from the Big Bang? That was a prediction that was made. It was a discovery that was made, in fact, serendipitously, led to a Nobel Prize results that came out in 1965, that you could measure the, the background radiation, this remnant from the Big Bang. Now we can make those measurements so precisely that to one part in 100,000, so the background radiation is the same in every direction we look, but there are tiny, tiny differences, you know, thousands of a percent. And we can actually measure those now. And they tell us something about the nature of the universe. And, and that's only one example of the kinds of things. So Hubble Space Telescope was launched. We measure the expansion of the universe. And, and I think the the rapid pace of discovery and, and what we learned in all of this, the universe isn't like what we thought at the mm. beginning. We, it turns out, are not most of, uh, like most of the matter in the universe. So everything we know, what this table is made out of, the clothes we're wearing, the air that we breathe, all the molecules that are in the periodic table that we learn about in high school, that's only a tiny fraction of the overall mass plus energy in the universe. It's 5%. That's it. We are unlike what most of the universe is made out of. This is neither um, 
results that we've only learned about in the last couple of decades. Moreover, not just the mass is different, but it turns out we are not only expanding, the universe not only expanding as Hubble told us and, and Einstein's theory is consistent with, but it's speeding up in its expansion. So these two components, one is called dark matter. It's matter, very different from the stuff you and I are made out of. And then there's this, what appears to be a force, a repulsive force that's causing the universe to speed up. And together, those two things, the dark matter and dark energy, make up 95% of what the universe is made out of. And we just had no idea that that 95%. was 95%. We are the tip of the iceberg. And we don't understand what those things are yet. There are people working, hundreds of scientists all over the world now, trying to understand what is this stuff. But the evidence that's been piling up based on telescopes primarily, and experiments that are being done in underground uh, laboratories around the world trying to understand what, what is the stuff that is filling the universe. So we could, we could not have predicted this. And, and now we might start getting a little closer to some, some additional answers here. We just may. That's and, pretty remarkable. And we're very likely to do that. Well, let me turn a little bit. I have an offbeat question for you. Do you believe that the people that are in your field are more or less spiritual than those outside of the field. So I think that's a very individual thing. And and how you would define spirituality, you could do that in different ways. Right. I, I think if you're thinking about the universe and the origin of the universe, the evolution of the universe, that's a very spiritual kind of thing. It very may much not so. be everybody's definition of what spiritual is, but I think we all, again, as a human species, have a uh, innate craving. A, innate craving to understand where it all came from. And and it's, I think, extremely exciting endeavor to be part of that process yeah, to truly. probe and ask questions. How did this happen? Why are we here? And a lot of those questions now we're beginning to answer, which is not to say we have all the answers. I think we never will. But uh, yeah, in, in, in some sense, that's a spiritual mm -hmm. quest. Very much. Well, like you said earlier, what a great time to be alive and in your field. Uh, yeah, I couldn't say it better. It is a great time to it's be alive and be in my field. Wonderful. Well, thanks for coming and talking with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Big Brains is a production of the UChicago Podcast Network. To learn more, visit us at news.uchicago.edu and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you liked Big Brains, you might enjoy another UChicago podcast, Knowledge Applied, taking you inside the research, reshaping everyday life. Thanks for listening. <laughs>